Chapter Eight of the Ivory Child by H. Rider Haggard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eight, The Start. That evening, when the baggage had been disposed of and locked up in my little stable, and arrangements were made for the delivery of some cases containing tinned foods, etc., which had proved too heavy for the Scotch cart, Lord Ragnall and I continued our conversation. First, however, we unpacked the guns and checked the ammunition, of which there was a large supply, with more to follow. A beautiful battery they were, of all sorts, from elephant guns down to the most costly and best finished that money could buy at the time. It made me shiver to think what the bill for them must have been, while their appearance, when they were put together and stood in a long line against the wall of my sitting-room, moved old Hans to a kind of ecstasy. For a long while he contemplated them, patting the stocks one after the other, and giving each a name as though they were all alive, then exclaimed, "'With such weapons as these the Baas could kill the devil himself. Still, let the Baas bring in Tombi with him, a favourite old rifle of mine, and a mere toy in size, that had, however, done me good service in the past, as those who have read what I have written in Marie and the Holy Flower may remember.' for baas after all the wife of one's youth often proves more to be trusted than the fine young ones a man buys in his age also one knows all her faults but who can say how many there may be hidden up in a new woman however beautifully they are tattooed and he pointed to the elaborate engraving upon the guns i translated this speech to lord ragnall it made him laugh at which i was glad for up till then i had not seen him even smile I should add that in addition to these sporting weapons, there were no fewer than fifty military rifles of the best make. They were large-bore Sniders that had just been put upon the market, and with them, packed in tin cases, a great quantity of ammunition. Although the regulations were not so strict then as they are now, I met with a great deal of difficulty in getting all this armament through the customs. Lord Ragnall, however, had letters from the colonial office to such authorities as ruled in Natal, and, on our giving a joint undertaking that they were for defensive purposes only in unexplored territory, and not for sale, they were allowed through. Fortunate did it prove for us in after-days that this matter was arranged. That night before we went to bed I narrated to Lord Ragnall all the history of our search for the Holy Flower, which he seemed to find very entertaining. Also I told him of my adventures, to me far more terrible, as chairman of the bona fide gold-mine, and of their melancholy end. The lesson of which is, he remarked when I had finished, that because a man is a master of one trade, it does not follow that he is a master of another. You are, I should judge, one of the finest shots in the world. You are also a great hunter and explorer. But when it comes to companies, Quatermain, still, he went on, I ought to be grateful to that bona fide gold-mine, since I gather that had it not been for it and for your rascally friend Mr. Jacob, I should not have found you here. No, I answered, it is probable that you would not, as by this time I might have been far in the interior where a man cannot be traced, and letters do not reach him. Then he made a few pointed inquiries about the affairs of mine, noting my answers down in his pocket-book. I thought this odd, but concluded that he wished to verify my statements before entering into close companionship with me, since for aught he knew I might be the largest liar in the world and the swindler to boot. 
so said nothing even when i heard through a roundabout channel on the morrow that he had sought an interview with the late secretary of the defunct company a few days later for i may as well finish with this matter at once the astonishing object of these inquiries was made clear to me one morning i found upon my table a whole pile of correspondence at the sight of which i groaned feeling sure that it must come from duns and be connected with that infernal mine curiosity and a desire to face the worst however led me to open the first letter which as it happened proved to be from that very shareholder who had proposed a vote of confidence in me at the winding-up meeting by the time that it was finished my eyes were swimming and really i felt quite faint it ran honoured sir i knew that i was putting my money on the right horse when i said the other day that you were one of the straightest that ever ran well i have got the cheque sent to me by the lawyer on your account being payment in full for every farthing i invested in the bona fide gold mine and i can only say that it is uncommonly useful for that business had pretty well cleaned me out god bless you mr quatermain i opened another letter and another and another they were all to the same effect bewildered i went out to the step where i found hans with an epistle in his hand which he requested me to be good enough to read i read it it was from a well-known firm of local lawyers and said on behalf of alan quatermain esq we beg to enclose a draft for the sum of six hundred fifty pounds being the value of the interest in the bona fide gold mine limited in liquidation which stands in your name on the books of the company please sign enclosed receipt and return same to us yes and there was a draft for six hundred fifty pounds sterling i explained the matter to hans or rather i translated the document adding you see you have got your money back again but hans i never sent it i don't know where it comes from is it money boss asked hans surveying the draft with suspicion it looks very much like another bit of paper for which i paid money again i explained reiterating that i knew nothing of the transaction well boss he said if you did not send it some one did perhaps your father the reverend predicant who sees that you are in trouble and wishes to wash your name white again meanwhile boss please put that bit of paper in your pocket-book and keep it for me for otherwise i might be tempted to buy square face with it no i answered you can now buy back your land or some other land and there will be no need for you to come with me to the country of the kenda hans thought a moment and then very deliberately began to tear up the draft indeed i was only just in time to save it from destruction if the boss is going to turn me off because of this paper he said i will make it small and eat it you silly old fool i said as i possessed myself of the cheque then the conversation was interrupted for who should appear but sammy my old cook who began in his pompous language the perfect rectitude of your conduct mr quatermain moves me to the deepest gratitude though indeed i wish that i had put something into the food of the knave jacob who beguiled us all that would have caused him internal pangs of a severe if not of a very dangerous order my holding in the gold mine was not extensive but the unpaid bill of the said jacob and his friends here i cut him short and fled since i saw yet another shareholder galloping to the gate and behind him two more in a spider 
First I took refuge in my room, my idea being to put away that pile of letters. In so doing I observed that there was one still unopened. Half mechanically I took it from the envelope and glanced at its contents. They were word for word identical with those of that addressed to Mr. Hans Hottentot. Only my name was at the bottom of it, instead of that of Hans, and the cheque was for fifteen hundred pounds, the amount I had paid for the shares I held in the venture. Feeling as though my brain were in a melting pot, I departed from the house into a patch of native bush that in those days still grew upon the slope of the hill behind. Here I sat myself down, as I had often done before when there was a knotty point to be considered, aimlessly watching a lovely emerald cuckoo flashing, a jewel of light, from tree to tree, while I turned all this fairy godmother business over in my mind. Of course it soon became clear to me. Lord Ragnall in this case was the little old lady with a wand, the touch of which could convert worthless share certificates into banknotes of their face value. I remembered now that his wealth was said to be phenomenal, and after all the cash capital of the company was quite small. But the question was, could I accept his bounty? I returned to the house where the first person whom I met was Lord Ragnall himself, just arrived from some interview about the fifty Snyder rifles, which were still in bond. I told him solemnly that I wished to speak to him, whereon he remarked in a cheerful voice, "'Advance, friend, and all's well.' I don't know that I need to set out the details of the interview. He waited till I had got through my halting speech of mingled gratitude and expostulation, then remarked, "'My friend, if you will allow me to call you so, it is quite true that I have done this because I wished to do it, but it is equally true that to me it is a small thing, to be frank scarcely a month's income. What I have saved travelling on that ship to Natal would pay for it all.' Also I have weighed my own interest in the matter, for I am anxious that you should start upon this hazardous journey of ours up-country with a mind absolutely free from self-reproach or any money-care, for thus you will be able to do me better service. Therefore I beg that you will say no more of the episode. I have only one thing to add, namely that I have myself bought up at par value a few of the debentures— the price of them will pay the lawyers and the liquidation fees. Moreover, they give me a status as a shareholder, which will enable me to sue Mr. Jacob for his fraud, to which business I have already issued instructions. For please understand that I have not paid off any shares still standing in his name or in those of his friends. Here I may add that nothing ever came out of this action, for the lawyers found themselves unable to serve any writ upon that elusive person, Mr. Jacob who by then had probably adopted the name of some other patriarch. "'Please, put it all down as a rich man's whim,' he concluded. "'I can't call that a whim, which has returned fifteen hundred pounds odd to my pocket, that I had lost upon a gamble, Lord Ragnall. "'Do you remember, Quatermain, how you won two hundred fifty pounds upon a gamble at my place, and what you did with it?' which sum probably represented to you twenty or fifty times what it would do to me? Also, if that argument does not appeal to you, may I remark that I do not expect you to give me your services as a professional hunter and guide for nothing. Ah, I answered, fixing on this point and ignoring the rest. Now we come to business. If I may look upon this amount as salary, 
a very handsome salary, by the way, paid in advance, you taking the risks of my dying or becoming incapacitated before it is earned, I will say no more of the matter. If not, I must refuse to accept what is an unearned gift. I confess, Quatermain, that I did not regard it in that light, though I might have been willing to call it a retaining fee. However, do not let us wrangle about money any more. We can always settle our accounts when the bill is added up, if ever we reach so far. Now, let us come to more important details. So we fell to discussing the scheme, route and details of our proposed journey. Expenditure being practically no object, there were several plans open to us. We might sail up the coast and go by Kilwa, as I had done on the search for the Holy Flower, or we might retrace the line of our retreat from the Mazitu country which ran through Zululand. Again we might advance by whatever road we selected with a small army of drilled and disciplined retainers, trusting to force to break a way through to the Kenda. Or we might go practically unaccompanied, relying on our native wit and good fortune to attain our ends. Each of these alternatives had so much to recommend it, and yet presented so many difficulties, that after long hours' discussion, for this talk was renewed again and again, I found it quite impossible to decide upon any one of them, especially as in the end Lord Ragnall always left the choice with its heavy responsibilities to me. At length in despair I opened the window and whistled twice on a certain low note. A minute later Hans shuffled in, shaking the wet off the new corduroy clothes which he had bought upon the strength of his return to affluence, for it was raining outside, and squatted himself down upon the floor at a little distance. In the shadow of the table which cut off the light from the hanging lamp he looked, I remember, exactly like an enormous and antique toad. I threw him a piece of tobacco which he thrust into his corn-cob pipe and lit it with a match. "'The boss called me,' he said, when it was drawing to his satisfaction. "'What does boss want of Hans?' "'Light in darkness,' I replied, playing on his native name, and proceeded to set out the whole case to him. He listened without a word, then asked for a small glass of gin, which I gave him doubtfully. Having swallowed this at a gulp as though it were water, he delivered himself briefly to this effect. "'I think the boss will do well not to go to Kilwa, since it means waiting for a ship, or hiring one. Also there may be more slave-traders there by now who will bear him no love because of a lesson he taught them a while ago. On the other hand, the road through Zululand is open, though it be long, and there the name of Macumazahan is one well known.' I think also that the boss would do well not to take too many men, who make marching slow, only a wagon or two, and some drivers, which might be sent back when they can go no farther. From Zululand messengers can be dispatched to the Mazitu, who love you, and Bowsey, or whoever is king there to-day, will order bearers to meet us on the road, until which time we can hire other bearers in Zululand. The old woman at Beza Town told me, moreover, as you will remember, that the Kenda are very great people who live by themselves, and will allow none to enter their land which is bordered by deserts. Therefore no force that you could take with you and feed upon a road without water would be strong enough to knock down their gates like an elephant, and it seems better that you should try to creep through them like a wise snake, although they appear to be shut in your face." Perhaps also they will not be shot, since did you not say that two of their great doctors promised to meet you and guide you through them? Yes, I interrupted. I dare say it will be easier to get in than to get out of Kenderland. 
last of all baas if you take many men armed with guns the black part of the kendah people of whom i told you will perhaps think you come to make war whatever the white kendah may say and kill us all whereas if we be but a few perchance they will let us pass in peace i think that is all baas let the baas and the lord giza forgive me if my words are foolish here i should explain that egiza was the name which the natives had given to lord ragnall because of his appearance the word means a handsome person in the zulu tongue savage they called bina i don't know why bina in zulu means to push out the breast and it may be that the name was a roundabout allusion to the proud appearance of the dignified savage or possibly it had some other recondite signification at any rate, Lord Randall, Hans, and myself knew the splendid savage thenceforward by the homely appellation of Beans. His master said it suited him very well, because he was so green. "'This advice seems wise, Hans. Go now.' "'No, no more gin,' I answered. As a matter of fact, careful consideration convinced us it was so wise that we acted upon it down to the last detail." So it came about that one fine afternoon about a fortnight later, for hurry as we would our preparations took a little time, we trekked for Zululand over the sandy roads that ran from the outskirts of Durban. Our baggage and stores were stowed in two half-tented wagons, very good wagons, since everything we had with us was the best that money could buy, the after-part of which served us as sleeping-places at night. Hans sat on the Vurkis, or driving-seat, of one of the wagons, Lord Ragnall, Savage, and I were mounted upon salted horses, that is, horses which had recovered from, and were therefore supposed to be proof against, the dreadful sickness, valuable and docile animals which were trained to shooting. At our start a little contretemps occurred. To my amazement I saw Savage, who insisted upon continuing to wear his funereal upper servant's cutaway coat, engaged in grim determination in mounting his steed from the wrong side. He got into the saddle somehow, but there was worse to follow. The horse, astonished at such treatment, bolted a little way, Savage sawing at its mouth. Lord Ragnall and I canted after it, past the wagons, fearing disaster. All of a sudden it swerved violently, and Savage flew into the air, landing heavily in a sitting posture. "'Poor beans!' ejaculated Lord Ragnall as we sped forward. "'I expect there is an end of his journeyings.' To our surprise, however, we saw him leap from the ground with the most marvellous agility and begin to dance about, slapping at his posterior parts and shouting, "'Take it off! Kill it!' A few seconds later we discovered the reason. The horse had shied at a sleeping puff-adder which was curled up in the sand of that little frequented road, and on this puff-adder Savage had descended with so much force, for he weighed thirteen stone, that the creature was squashed quite flat and never stirred again. This, however, he did not notice in his agitation, being convinced indeed that it was hanging to him behind like a bulldog. "'Snakes, my lord!' he exclaimed, when at last, after careful search, we demonstrated to him that the adder had died before it could come into action. "'I hate em, my lord, and the aunts!' he said, "'Aunts, me! If ever I get out of this, I'll go and live in Ireland, my lord!' where they say there ain't none. But it isn't likely that I shall, he added mournfully, for the omen is horrid. On the contrary, I answered, it is splendid, for you have killed the snake and not the snake you. 
The dog it was that died, Savage. After this the Kaffirs gave Savage a second very long name, which meant, He who sits down on snakes and makes them flat. Having remounted him to his horse, which was standing patiently a few yards away, at length we got off. I lingered a minute behind the others to give some directions to my old Greek gardener, Jack, who snivelled at parting with me, and to take a last look at my little home. Alack! I feared it might be the last indeed, knowing as I did that this was a dangerous enterprise upon which I found myself embarked, I who had vowed that I would be done with danger. With a lump in my throat I turned from the contemplation of that peaceful dwelling and happy garden in which each tree and plant was dear to me, and waving a good-bye to Jack, cantered on to where Ragnall was waiting for me. "'I am afraid this is a rather sad hour for you, who are leaving your little boy and your home,' he said gently, "'to face unknown perils.' "'Not so sad as others I have passed,' I answered, "'and perils are my daily bread in every sense of the word. "'Moreover, whatever it is for me, it is for you also.' "'No,' Quatermain, "'for me it is an hour of hope, a faint hope, I admit.' but the only one left, for the letters I got last night from Egypt and England report that no clue whatsoever has been found, and indeed that the search for any has been abandoned. Yes, I follow the last star left in my sky, and if it sets I hope that I may set also, at any rate to this world. Therefore I am happier than I have been for months, thanks to you. And he stretched out his hand, which I shook. It was a token of friendship and mutual confidence, which I am glad to say nothing that happened afterwards ever disturbed for a moment. End of chapter 8